You notice we don't have Bibles out. Like I, I said in the email, we're trying to limit how many things we touch. So this is a chance for you to start bringing a Bible to church again. Um, so whether electronic or physical, although my vote's for physical. If I get a vote, bring a physical Bible. But um, either way, we're going to hear God's word. Um, this morning as we come together after 11 weeks of not being together in person, I want us to spend some time being reminded from the word of God about the importance of the gathered church. So we've gone through this now three months of not being able to come together. Maybe you've thought about the church in ways that you had not before. What it means that God calls us together, that he intends for us to assemble and to be together as his people. And what's interesting is during this time, there's been a whole new level of conversation just out in the world about the assembling of the church. Now, if you notice this, just like on the news and people who never thought, never gave any thought to the church comes together every week. They know it, but they never thought about it. But I have neighbors asking me, so what are y'all doing? You, you're not coming together. What? There's just this focus on the gathered church, on who we are. Of course, we know why it's important for us to come together. It's what God's called us to do. And my original intent for this morning was that we would just spend time just considering the, the, the call to come together and what it means for us to be together. But of course, as we come together this morning, there's something else that's probably on many of your minds and it's been on my mind throughout the week. I think it's an understatement to say that these past couple of weeks have been devastating for us as a nation. It's hard to know where to begin to describe it, but our, what we do know is that our nation is divided and our nation is hurting. We can talk about increased awareness of racial division. We talk about horrible responses we've seen, the, the violence and the destruction. We can talk about political divisions, social divisions. But what we acknowledge, whether, you know, we could go all these different ways and talk about all these different issues, but the big picture is we have a nation that's hurting, we have a nation that is divided. These are things we should be talking about and thinking about. And we should be doing what we can to, to help our neighbors as they are going through this. And of course, we recognize that the church, where their true need is, right? We know that the only true way that we move past this is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are temporary solutions. There are things that we should do to help our neighbors, to encourage unity. But we know the ultimate thing, the only thing that really fixes this it's the gospel. It's not to say we shouldn't do things. We should be involved. We, but this morning, we're going to go to the root. We're going to consider what, what's needed. What does the world need to see? What does the world need to hear? People are searching for peace. They're searching for justice, looking for hope. And we know that these things are only truly found, only permanently found, only fully found, in Jesus. And with that said, here's what I want us to consider this morning as we turn to God's word. Especially, you know, I came not knowing, do we celebrate this morning because we're together or do we grieve because of the condition of our nation? Here's how I'll summarize what we're going to talk about in God's word this morning. 
that one of the reasons God has called us together as the church is so the world can see the character of God and the power of the gospel on display. One of the reasons God has called his people together to live alongside of each other, to be joined together, is so the world can see the character of God and the power of the gospel on display. Maybe you saw the title of the message already. The church is the gospel made visible. And I stole the title. It came from a book. But that title's, I don't remember a lot of the book, but the title is stuck in my head. That the church is this representation to the, representation of the world of, of what the gospel does. The gospel unites. The gospel brings peace. I think it's important for us to consider this right now that the only hope for our world living in chaos is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the ways that God intends for the world to see what the gospel does is through the way we live with one another, through the way we function. We are called to speak the gospel. We know this, right? We've been called with our words to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is essential and that is necessary. But this morning in particular, we're going to consider the way that that how we live as a body is proof of the power of the gospel, and it serves our existing together proclaims the power of the gospel. We just think about the events of this week. We see the disunity out there, but we can come together and by our assembling proclaim peace is available. The church can be a visible manifestation of the gospel through the way we live, through the way we interact with one another, through the way we interact with the world. It serves as a testimony of the power of the gospel and the change that Jesus can bring in the lives of people because we are sinners, yes? We know how to be disunited with the best of them, but we can come together and recognize the change that comes through a changed heart. Here's what God intends, that the world that is looking for peace, looking for justice, looking for hope, that this world would see his people, would see his church and hear his people and hear his church and be convinced that all the things they're searching for can be found in him. But of course, here's the question, and this is moving us towards what we're going to see in the scriptures this morning. The question is, are we a good representation are we living the way God has called us to live? Do our lives and does our life as a church collectively provide a proper picture of the work of the gospel? When those outside look at us, do they see a people of peace? You're all pretty peaceful right now. But what about when you're behind your keyboard on social media? What about when you're talking at work, when you're discussing the news? Does the world see a people of hope? Do they see a people who can live together in unity? Not because we all look the same. Not because we all think the same. Not because we all have the same background. Because we don't. But do they see that through Jesus Christ there are people who are vastly different in every conceivable way, yet can be joined together and love each other despite all the things that could tear us apart? Do they see that in us? Do they see that in you? It's with that in mind that we're going to spend this week 
and next week and maybe the next. Working through a, a passage in Romans 12 that I thought we would do in one week. Doesn't always work out the way I thought it would. But I trust that we will benefit as we consider the way God has called us to live with one another and relationship to the world so that we can be a good representation of him and give the world a vision of what they're looking for played out in front of them. This should be our prayer, that our life as a church will be a proclamation to the world of the hope they are searching for. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to spend our time in Romans chapter 12. And before we read our text, you can start your stopwatch. In two minutes or less, I'm going to summarize the first 11 chapters of Romans. It's not possible, is it? But let me, let's get, you need to know where we are in the book of Romans. And, and most of you know your Bibles well. You know where we are. But let me just remind us. The first 11 chapters of Romans are probably the clearest explanation of the gospel we have written in the Bible. Paul starts with who we were in sin, our fallen nature, who we were in Adam. And he moves us through to, to show what Christ did in accomplishing salvation, how it's been applied to us. He explains justification. He explains the process of sanctification. He makes the work of Jesus in us clear and then in verses nine, or chapter 9 through 11, discusses how that interacts with his plan for saving the world. It's Romans 1 through 11. That was less than a minute. We get to Romans 12, there's a shift. The first 11 chapters is the gospel, and it's a foundation that we have to have in our minds as we come to chapter 12. If we just start in chapter 12, we lose the foundation. And all of it just becomes moral obedience, right? We have to recognize that the things we're going to talk about today in chapter 12 come as a result of the heart change that's been experienced because of what happened in verses, chapters 1 through 11. So Paul shifts and he begins to describe how those of us who have been changed by the gospel should live, how our lives should put the gospel on display. So he says there in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, you know these passages, after all of that in chapters 1 through 11, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So based on everything I've said, based on who you now know you are in Christ, based on that, I appeal to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Important verses, that based on the mercy and grace of God, we are called to give our lives. This is our call. We can overcome sin. We can live in the way that he's called us to live because of the heart he's given us through his salvation. So that's verses 1 and 2. Then in verses 3 through 8, he starts to discuss the gifts that are given to the church. It's very similar to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That gifts have been given to us as a church, and we could have spent our time, we almost started here, I'll be honest with you, because it describes who we are as a church, and that we all have been given different gifts, and we all come together and we compose the body of Christ. And it's not by accident, it's by his plan, it's by his design that he has called us together and gifted us for the work he has called us to do. 
That's verses three to eight. Someone told me that I'm more monotone, it was just a video, and I'm more animated once you, I feel it now. I didn't know what they're talking about, so I stood in front of you. This is good. As we get to verse nine, he starts just expounding what it looks like for the people who have been saved, who have been brought together as his church, gifted, how we should live with one another in relation to the world. So that's where we are in Romans. Before we read the passage, let me just give you a couple of things to consider about the original hearers of this letter. Being written to the church of Rome, new believers, and they were a group of people that traditionally had been divided by race. Jew and Gentile. And now through Christ, they've been brought together and told to sit in the same pew with one another. And if you think that switch was easy and quick, you're very mistaken. But here we have people who have been united in Christ and now joined to this church. If you think we have racial division now, you should have lived in Rome when Jew and Gentile were brought together and joined to the same church. Divisions that have been established over generations don't just disappear. So this is something that that church is working through and living through as they learn how to live with one another based on the unity they have in Christ. Church, what we're experiencing in our nation is not new. What we also know is not only did they have this internal struggle, but they're also being persecuted by their government. There's this pressure internally, and there's also pressure coming from outside. What we're going to read is how God is calling them to live. He knows the division they have inwardly. He knows the persecution that's coming outwardly. And in light of all that, here's what he tells them. We're going to read what he tells his church to do when you're struggling with division in the church, when you're struggling with persecution from outside, when the world around you seems to be going crazy. In the midst of racial struggles, in the midst of persecution, this church is the call by God for his people. Romans chapter 12. We will start reading in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, live at peace with all men. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, excuse me, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil 
with good. The grass weathers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. May God be blessed through the reading and preaching of his word. It's hard to um, overstate how practical (laughs) this passage is. It's also hard to overstate how hard it is to go from teaching narrative for so many weeks to now just 25 commands, go. We'll do it together. But after all the deep theology of chapters 1 through 11, now Paul is writing in simple terms. He wants us to hear and understand how to be the people that God has called us to be. And I'm sure you recognize how opposite so much of this passage is to what we see around us in the world. Isn't it? This is not the way we function out there. And I say we intentionally. Because while it can be easy to say that the world has a problem with this stuff, they're not doing it well, let's be honest, church. We all find ourselves there. We are sinners too, and our flesh tells us to say we love with our lips while hatred is growing in our hearts. Our flesh tells us to love evil and to despise what is good. Our flesh encourages us to love ourselves more than we love others, to prioritize our own interests over the interests of others. Our flesh cries out for revenge. This is how our flesh thinks and acts. So it should not surprise us that our world is the way it is, and it should not surprise us that we see what we see on the news. But as the church of Jesus Christ, we have an opportunity. Through the power of the Spirit that lives in us, we have an opportunity to show the world the difference that Christ can make and the power of the gospel to transform a life and a community. This is our opportunity. When the darkness is as dark as can be, the light can be seen more clearly. So we have 25 commands. We'll get through a few of them today. And when you just read it, it appears to not have much structure. However, I would suggest there is some. It starts in the first few verses talking mainly about our relationships with one another. And then it builds out to how the church interacts with the world and then out even further that, how the church interacts with those who are persecuting it. So it starts very internal and we work our way out. This morning we're going to focus on that first section, verses 9 to 13, about our relationships with one another. And next week we'll move to the the next section. So we see there in verse 9 the first command. Let love be genuine. And what what we really can't see in our English translation is that in verse 9, there's a primary verb. So if you look at the Greek, there's a way that designates this is a a main verb. And the rest of this chapter are all participles or supporting verbs. That doesn't make sense. It's okay. It didn't make sense to me at first either. Here's here's what you need to know. There's a big command and all the other commands are subpoints. The big command is this. Let love be genuine. And it should not surprise us that love leads the way. After all, what are the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul. And second, love your neighbor as yourself, right? That's the heart of the Christian life, love for others. 
And this is the leading command over this whole list of how we should interact with one another and with the world outside. Let love be genuine. Now, the ESV chose a positive translation, and arguably it should be a negative translation. Let love be without hypocrisy. If you're reading from another translation, you may see that. Let love be genuine. Let it be sincere. Or stated differently, let love be without hypocrisy. And we all know what it means to be a hypocrite. It's like playing a part in a play. You portray one thing, but it's not who you really are. You give an appearance of something that's not really true. And this is the primary command, the heading of our entire passage. Let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be genuine. As the people of God, there should not be any pretense about something that's not real. There should not be empty words with no action. We should love and love sincerely. We should love and not hypocritically. We see something very similar, some of the same words used in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter writes, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That same word, genuinely, sincerely, without hypocrisy. Love one another from a pure heart, without any reservations, without any pretense. This is more than lip action. Look at verse 23. Why do we do this? How do we do this? Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. This is a active love. It is not a superficial love. In fact, the word that Paul uses here in verse 9, it's a word that up to Paul had been used almost exclusively of the love of God. You've heard of agape love. You've probably heard this before, but I think it's worth saying again. That up to this point, until Paul starts writing, this is a word that was almost exclusively used of the love of God for us. But when the early church needed a word to describe the love that God creates within his family, when they needed a word to describe the kind of love we should have for one another, they took this word and started using it. It's the deepest form of love. And this is the love we're told to have for one another. This is the love that will set us apart as the people of God. You know the words of Jesus in John 13. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. And then here's a key verse for what we're talking about. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love, one for another. They will know us by our love. This is how they will recognize us. This is what will set us apart. But it must be genuine, it must be sincere, it must be without hypocrisy. So what does that look like? Well, I would suggest that the rest of the verses we're going to look at this morning explain what genuine love looks like. First, our love is to be discerning and move us to action. Verse 9. Excuse me. 
What we see in verse 9 is that Christian love is not blind. I know what the song says. Love is blind, but what we see here is that love takes action. Love speaks up. More specifically, verse 9 says that we show our love by hating what is evil and clinging to what is good. Now, let me just say this. When we say hate what is evil, we're not talking about people here. We're talking about motives. We're talking about actions. We hate what is evil. If we're going to love each other rightly, if we're going to have genuine and sincere love, we must be willing to stand up against what is evil and at the same time uphold what is right. Look at the verse again. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. And this is something we talk about quite a bit as a church. This is central to the way we strive to function. That we must be people who hate sin. And we must hate the things that God hates. And hate is a strong word. And parents are thinking, stop saying hate. We tell our kids not to say hate. Strong word. It is. It's the word that Paul uses. We must abhor, despise, hate bitterly what is evil. What does that look like? What does it look like to hate evil? Let's start small and work our way out. Let's start with our own hearts. See, hating evil isn't only or even primarily about hating what's going on out there. Hating evil starts with hating what goes on in your own heart that does not please God. This should be the first place we go. I want to hate evil. I want to hate sin. What's in my heart that needs to be rooted out? Is there any hint of anger, pride, lust, selfishness? Gossip, fear, greed, the list goes on and on. Before we turn our eyes outward, we have to start with hating our own sin and striving to put it to death. If you're going to love your brothers and sisters well, if we're going to love each other well, we need to clean house in our own hearts first. I love you well by making sure I'm cleaning out my heart of sin. And you love the rest of us well. By doing the same. But thankfully, we don't do this alone. We move one step out to the church. We start with hating our own sin and striving to put it to death, and then and only then we should look up and see what we can do to help those around us do the same. Love is discerning and love takes action. So part of hating evil means that we don't allow our brothers to cling to things that don't honor God. We're called as people of God to go to one another in love and to speak the truth to them. You know Galatians chapter 1, or 6, verse 1, excuse me. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Because we hate our brother? No, because we hate evil. And we know the destructive nature of sin. And keep watch on yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, which is what? Love. We fulfill love for our brothers when we hate their sin and we urge them to turn away from it. So we start with ourselves. Then we hate the evil that exists within our brothers and sisters in the church. I think we do go out beyond that. And we hate the evil that exists in our world. 
and we should do what we can to speak against it, which will look different for each of us, and each local church is going to look different. I've been in conversations with different churches and different pastors in our area about responses to what's going on, and different churches are equipped in different ways, have different personalities that are going to have influence in different communities. But we saw in verses three to eight that we've all been given our gifts. And as a church, we need to identify what our gifts is and how we play our part in standing up against what is evil around us. Psalm 97 says, Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. It must be more than inward conviction. It must move us to action, which means first, sharing the gospel. Primarily, sharing the gospel. It also means being willing to be the hands and feet in our community, doing our part to stand up for what is evil, stand up against what is evil, and then the other side of that coin is what we see in the next part of the verse, standing up for what is good. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. You may remember the words of Jesus about marriage in Matthew chapter 19. Hang with me, this is going somewhere. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus uses that, this same word in Matthew 19 for joining people together. A man should hold fast to his wife and as a result become one flesh. And that word hold fast could also be used as glue or cement together. So we are joined as one flesh with our spouse we're glued or cemented together, and we're told here, in the same way, hold fast to what is good. Be glued to what is good. Be inseparable from what is good. That's how Paul describes our relationship with good. We are to cling to it or be glued to it. It's the other side of the coin of hating evil, and some of us are really good at hating evil, but not so good at standing for what is good or maybe vice versa. We shouldn't be known only or even primarily for what we are against. We should also be clear in speaking the truth. As Christians, we must be clear in saying what God says, standing for what God says is right and true. And we can talk through the same three levels. We cling to what is good in our own hearts and in our church and in our communities. We have been called to be people of good works. Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And again, all this falls under this heading of let love be without hypocrisy. How do we love each other well? We hate what is evil. We stand for what is good. How do we show genuine love? For starters, if we're going to love sincerely and without hypocrisy, we can't allow one another to live in sin. We must call one another to repentance. We hate what is evil and we are committed to what is good. Of course, our world says their definition of genuine love is you let them do them. <laughs> you let them do whatever makes them happy. As Christians, we must be willing to speak up when someone is living or functioning in a way that is contrary to the word of God. And in addition, we must not remain silent when those around us are being sinned against. Our hatred for evil will drive us to see what is wrong set right. This is how we love without hypocrisy. 
It's how we make the gospel visible. We demonstrate to the world what it looks like to live together in sincere love, which is the love that God has shown us and the kind of love that we are called to have for one another. That's the second thing. Our love for one another must be loyal and selfless. We see that in verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I love the way that God composes the church. He calls us together from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we don't come together in an ideal situation. And we know that this isn't always the case. But we don't come together because of social status. We don't come together because we all look the same or come from the same places. God composes his church. And the local church should look, reflect this of a diversity of people. And the reason I bring that up is because when diverse people come together, there is the potential for struggle. But the Bible says we're called together, we are invited, or we are adopted rather into a family, and we're called to love each other with brotherly affection. It's a different word for love now. This is familial love. It's the kind of love that a mother has for a child or a brother has for a sister. We're family, and we're to love each other with this intimate, familial love. It's a love that's loyal and faithful. We could go back again to 1 Peter chapter 1. We've been purified. We have a sincere, brotherly love. We love each other earnestly from a pure heart. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, Concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves know how you've been taught by God to love one another. God writes us on our hearts that he's joined us together as a family. There's a love that we should have for one another. And if we just stopped there, said, hey, love, love your church, love the people around you. I think we all say, yeah, I love the church that way. They're like my family. But let me push us a little further. Because this is the kind of love we're called to have for all those who name the name of Christ. So the question is, do we love the people of God with brotherly affection? Let's consider our own hearts. Is there someone even within our own church who you struggle to love? We are called to love without hypocrisy. And if we're going to be a visible representation of the difference that the gospel makes, then we must love this way without any exceptions. Remember the situation in Rome. It's a church where Jews and Gentiles are sitting side by side for the first time ever. We know that presented some challenges. But this is the call, love without hypocrisy. And if we're going to do the same, then we must check our hearts, every one of us, to ensure that we are submitting fully to the call of God on our lives. And it's a love that's not only given with our words, it's followed by action, and it's not passive. See, at the end of verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor. That goes beyond just saying I love someone, right? We outdo one another in showing honor. If you have your Bibles, look back up to verse 3. I've alluded to it several times, but let's read. Starting in verse 3, he's describing the church. He says this, By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned 
For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. So here we see the beauty of the church, that we're not all the same. We don't all have the same personalities. We don't all have the same preferences. We don't all have the same giftings. There are ways that you can serve that I would be lousy at. Some of us are loud. Some of us are quiet. Some of us are outgoing. Some of us aren't. But here's the call. Don't just honor those who have the gifts that you think are cool, that you think are appealing. Don't just honor those who have the gifts that serve you the best. Now we look at the church that God has composed and we try to outdo one another in showing honor. This is different than the world, how the world functions, isn't it? In our world, there's a lot of talk about honor, but usually it's just praise for people we like or for people who we want to like us. But in the church, every person is to be valued, loved, and honored. We're called to outdo one another in showing honor. This is your challenge. Outdo one another in showing honor. The list is getting long, isn't it? And right now you're thinking one of two things. One, I don't know if I can make it to the end of the sermon. Or two, I'm not sure I can actually fulfill all these commands. Maybe both. Well, if you're feeling like this is too much, I can't do all of that. Verse 11 is for you. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Here's the reality. What these verses are calling us to, love without hypocrisy, hating evil, standing up for what is good, outdoing one another with honor. These are calls for actions. They are calls out of our comfort zones. They are calling us to make the gospel visible, to be the hands and feet of Christ. It's a long list. It's hard work. But this is the next command. Don't be slothful in zeal. Don't be lazy in passion. I think we all know what it's like to get to that point. To become lazy in our passion for Christ and his church. Maybe if you're honest, these past 11 weeks have been a time when you've shifted into cruise control. Maybe you have not served others well and you had a pretty good excuse. I can't coronavirus. Right? There's so much I can't do, so I'm just going to take a break from serving, from loving, from honoring. I'm just going to pull back. Well, here's our reminder that we have a calling and we are not to be slothful in our zeal. We're not to be lazy in our passion. Instead, we are to be fervent in spirit. Paul says in Ephesians 5, Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We only have so much time, church. So much opportunity. We must not be slothful in our zeal. We must walk carefully. We must walk faithfully. We must use the time we've been given. Paul says in Galatians 6, Let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, 
especially those who are of the household of faith. Let's not grow weary. Let's do what God has called us to do. Let's love that hypocrisy. Let's hate sin. Let's stand for what is good. Let's do what God has called us to do in being a proclamation of the gospel to the world. And if we're going to maintain our passion and our focus, it starts with a proper perspective. Because you know what can kill zeal? You know what can kill a fervent spirit? A misunderstanding of the things that are happening in our lives. I think that's where Paul shifts to in verse 12. When he says, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. We don't have to go any further than today's news to recognize that this world is broken and hurting and we live in it. And I'm the first to admit that over the past several weeks, I've spent too much time on social media and the noise of it has stolen some of my joy. And I can find myself thinking that things are too far gone to ever be changed. And I can find myself being fearful about my boys growing up in this world. But those thoughts are a result of me taking my eyes off Christ. When we find ourselves getting overwhelmed, we have to remember that we have hope. And Paul's command here is rejoice in hope. Even in the noise, even in the chaos, here's where we go. We rejoice in hope. And when we do that, shouldn't that help us to remain passionate and zealous and earnest? I like another translation that says, let hope keep you joyful. Maybe we need to stick that to our computer screen. Let hope keep you joyful. We know that we have hope, sure and certain. If you're in Christ, you don't have to live in fear. We have hope, and hope can give us joy. This phrase, rejoice in hope, Paul's used it before already in the letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 5 Verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope. The glory of God. Rejoice in hope. Paul exemplified it. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And Paul had joy even in suffering. He had hope and joy because of who he was in Christ. Leads to the next command, be patient in tribulation or endure through suffering. We go back, these two things are side by side in Romans 5 as well. Rejoice in hope and then not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. And when we hear patience, we should not hear passive. No, it's it's actually a world about holding our ground. It's about endurance. In tribulation, endure. As the world watches how we respond to suffering and injustice and persecution, they should see something different in us. They should see a people who rejoice in hope who are patient in tribulation. As we stand against evil, as we stand for what is good, and we know that we do it all not in our own power, but in the power of God, we must be constant in prayer. Isn't this a good reminder of the dependence we have 
We're called to take a stand for what is good and also be faithful on our knees. Stand, but also kneel. We are called to go and speak. We are called to proclaim. We're also called to look to the one who has the power to bring change. And God forbid we try to do any of this in our own strength. We must be a people who persist in prayer. And if we put this under the heading of loving without hypocrisy, we must be faithful in praying for one another. As we come together this morning for the first time in months, I hope this serves as a reminder of how much we need one another. We must pray for one another. God has called us together and it's for our benefit, but it's also so that the, the gospel can be made visible to a watching world. We get maybe the most visible one in that last verse we're going to consider this morning. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Hypocritical love says, if you need anything, let me know. Hope they don't call. Genuine, sincere love is generous and seeks out opportunity to serve. I've said it so many times. I don't know how people live without the local church. This, my testimony is that I've always had the local church. And we, we know where we can go when we have a need of any kind. Spiritual, physical. And this is what this verse is talking about. That as the church we contribute to the needs of one another. We show hospitality to one another. I think about just last month when I sent an email with a pretty big number in it of how much was needed to serve Hank and his family. And it was a matter of like two days, covered. We're not a large church. We don't have a, long, a large distribution list on our email. But very quickly, there was contributions for the needs of the saints. Over and above your faithfulness to give. And I want to say, church, you're doing well, but do not grow weary in doing what is good. It's about more than writing checks, isn't it? We know that, but this is one way, and it's talked about here, contribute to the needs of the saints. And I already know that there are people in that family who saw what the body of Christ did, and they recognized the character of God. We are a visible representation of the gospel when we love without hypocrisy. And loving without hypocrisy sometimes means we have to write a check. Sometimes it means we have to give a bed. Right? And this is how we show the gospel. We demonstrate. And let me be clear. I think you all know my heart. We speak the gospel. We proclaim the gospel. We share the gospel. But we, we also live in a way where its implications are shown. That's what we see here in this passage. The implications of the gospel and how the world can see the change that the gospel makes. Well, that's just the first few commands there. And next week, we're going to come together and take on some more of them. But I've been thankful for this passage this week for both reasons. One, as we gather, we get a chance to do these things together. And also, as we see the chaos around us in our world, we recognize that we get to set an example of what the gospel does, what he does in us. 
I'll leave you with this. We live in a world that is hurting. Your neighbors are hurting. Your community is hurting. Let's not forget that as the people of God, we've been called to be ambassadors of the hope that God has given us. First through proclamation, second by example. As we celebrate our regathering, I hope it will remind us of what we've been called to be as his church. We should strive to live in a way that puts the character of God and the power of the gospel on display. Paul said to the church at Philippi, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. May this be true of us.